Now create your own Terminator with the BioFlesh Regenerator. I'm back. Yeah? Think again. Battle damage. Add flesh compound. Terminator created. Terminator. I'm back. Terminator. I'm back. Got to find John Connor. But evil T-1000 gets to him first. Hey, back off. Terminator's heavy metal cycle zeroes in and fires. Ah. But T-1000 stands to get even. This is for getting on my bad side. You're next, John Connor. I'm back. Terminator deploys his secret weapon. Hasta la vista, baby. Terminated this time. Terminator is back. Ah, <laughs> uh, so welcome back. We're back again for a little, um, little, little surprise uh, sidecast. Uh, this is Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. That's uh, it's uh, Jay Blake, and this is Dion Baya. And Although I feel like uh, some, if we continue to do these, we'll have to come up with a name for it. I mean, clearly, yeah. it's well. This is the. It's a sidecast of some sort, but it's the yes, it's updates. the it's the, it's, it's the yeah the update the supplemental. It's the <laughs> unsolved mysteries update. Additional the additional. Information. It's the sidebar of of the uh, where a couple weeks ago we did uh, the black hole where we rambled for an hour and a half on the black <laughs> hole and the uh, the novel is that the the, the, the Different stuff we learned from when we first did the black hole some years ago, maybe 2014 or 15 for Halloween. We um, uh, had some questions we posed while we, you know, we did that podcast, and then uh, we found that we were able to answer uh, when we did the um, uh, the what do you call it? the 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 I, I went and read the novelization for the Alan Dean Foster book and the the comic book the Whitman the Whitman four issue comic book and as well as the Jack Kirby uh, comic strip. So after reading all that stuff and then with the new Blu-ray release, I said, hey, Blake, let's just talk about, we can, you know, eat some time up since we're hanging out and talk social distancing, of course, with our masks on. Uh, we could talk about the differences and some of the questions that we posed in the original podcast. We were somehow able to answer. And then we also find out new stuff about the John Barry score and how it was recorded and then the process of having to try to remaster that and put it out finally as an anniversary edition CD, which is very interesting. So go check that out. Um, it's If you've listened to the original Black Hole, this is just like an update on you know other stuff we've learned uh, since the, the other thing. And we had so much fun doing that, we figured, hey, what? Why not do it again? You know, it's like yeah. Uptown Saturday Night, and let's do it again. Blake is Sidney Portier, and I'm Bill Cosby. <laughs> and that means Blake's directing the movies, too, because remember, uh, Sidney Portier, I think, directed those movies. So um, here but we go, also, brother. I had, uh, I've had Terminator on the brain lately. And, yes. And uh, it was playing on some channel, so I... I watched it again recently, and uh, just things were going around, and I remembered that you had talked a little bit about the novelization for both the first Terminator and the second Terminator when we did Terminator 2 Judgment Day during our summer of sequels uh, last, last year, summer. Yeah. 
And so I was like, uh, I don't really have a lot of time because I'm still working at home. But uh, I thought, you know, maybe I should read the Terminator novelization. And uh, so I suggested, well, if we're going to talk about movies, we're going to talk about movies we've already covered. I'm kind of really digging Terminator right now. Just like you were kind of really digging Black Hole. (laughs) Yeah, the glory hole. So so I said, why don't we talk about Terminator? And you're like, all right. Yeah. Yeah, I read the I read the novelization. Sure, we could, you know. And I forgot why we did Terminator Two, and I said let's just make it harder for myself, and I'll read the first book's novelization, <laughs> because it yeah. was incestuous. We found out that the um, if people can follow us with this, it's Gail Ann Hurd and Jim Cameron came up with the story. Jim Cameron came up with the idea, but then the two of them ended up coming up with the story and did the screenplay, and then you get what we're talking about tonight: the novelization by uh, Randall Frakes and Bill Wisher. And then, uh, what is that, six years later or so, when T2 comes out, you end up getting uh, Bill Wisher and Jim Cameron then go on to write the screenplay to Terminator 2, and Randall Frakes writes the novelization to T2. So they're all kind of familiar with, and you know they all know each other. So uh, that's, I think, what intrigued me to say, you know what, maybe I should read the first one first. And see if there's some, you know, breadcrumbs scattered about, which I found out there were. And then T2 is kind of the same. T2 is not as uh, cohesive, well, not cohesive, but just in depth as the first one. But T2 is also a very good read. So um, it's nice then now, because I remember talking about it when we did T2, but, you know, when I all the time go down that you know, briar patch of talking about shit. Yeah. You know, it's like, we get, come on, you got to keep on task. So I felt like I was talking too much about the novelization when we were doing T2 about T1, so that now it's nice that we can, you know, kind of expand a little bit on that. And also we could talk about maybe the soundtrack as well, which is awesome, you know, which we talked about a little bit. This is another thing because we already covered Terminator, uh, the original movie on the podcast. Jesus, I think that was the first year. It was pretty early. It was either first or second year. And so that was back when the show was only like 70 minutes long. So, yeah. So we can add this right on. And then this could be like the special. When we do the Blu ray release, part two, you know, it's the director's cut. This is like, um, you know, connected to to Terminator. But back then we talked about it. You know, I, I, I haven't listened to that episode in a very long time. But I remember we were saying how. It, it does play a lot like a horror movie, uh, which is awesome. And, and I think I might have even said that I think it's a, you know, the script is near perfect, like how it's how it's yeah. paced and everything. And, you know, then, then we talked about the deleted scenes and we talked about how cool the soundtrack is uh, that we love. Um, I forget the name of the pop band, but I have them on my, my MP3 player. Uh, and then there's also the score by um, Brad, uh, what's F- his name? Fidel. Yeah. So, um you know, uh, it was nice when when I said uh, I said black hole, and Blake said I will see your black hole, and I will raise you the Terminator. <laughs> I said, let's do it. You know, we, you know, we're hanging out anyway. Let's yeah. just not record our conversations and talk about them. And it turns out that um, this isn't. It's not the first time this has happened in the grand scheme of novelizations for movies. Um, I don't know how common it was, but it turns out that there are, there are actually two different novelizations for the first Terminator movie. Which is, which is, we didn't bring it up on either Terminator podcast, but you're the one who 
keyed me into this because you asked me when, when preparation for this. You said, which one do I have? Yeah. I said, what do you mean, which one do I have? Uh, my yeah. first, sir. A- apparently, on occasion, there has been uh, a novelization in the UK that's written by one person and a novelization in the US written by another person. Uh, Friday the 13th 3D is another example of this. There are two different versions. Do we know versions. why this? There was a UK version. This? What's that? Do we know what? why this is? I don't know why. I don't know. There must be you know? something about European rights versus American rights and somehow something, the wires, the, the, they cross the streams, the wires get <laughs> Well, I don't. I don't understand it because it's weird. Because there are, I've like say you'll take Clive Clusler who wrote Raise the Titanic. I have the Raise the Titanic American, but then there's the UK edition, which it's a different cover, yeah. but it's still his. So I know a lot of times there were like you know you're not the novelization would leave the US and you know maybe get translated into a different language. But uh, why? I wonder if, what the story. If that's interesting. If, if there's a rights issue or something, that why this other guy. You know, would be licensed to to you know to to have it be an authorized adaptation when they're already paying somebody or whoever's who's juiced connected right to the movie. Yeah, yeah. To do uh, you know, well, you know, uh, so Friday the Thirteenth three D. Of course, unfortunately, the three D doesn't translate quite as well in the novelization. Uh, there was a UK version in eighty three of that one, and then the US version of that uh, novelization was uh, released in 85. So there's actually a pretty substantial bit of time in between them. Uh, With Terminator, there was a a novelization written for the Terminator uh, for the UK by an author named Sean Hudson, which was released uh, by Starbooks as the publishing company, and it was released in February of 1985. Which is a year after the movie comes out. And but the Randall Frakes Bill Wisher version, which Dion and I read, which is the U.S. version, that was released by Bantam uh, for the U.S. and that, but that didn't come out till October of '85. So that ended up coming out, um, you know, you know, almost you know more than half a year later uh, than the Sean Hudson version. The Sean Hudson version, from what I understand, I haven't been able to find a copy of it because apparently, from what I found, it only had that like a limited run that first time. Uh, whereas the Randall Frakes and Bill Wisher version has had prints, you know, has had a second, maybe even a third print. And maybe that version, the Frakes Wish- Wisher version might be the version that eventually went to the UK. So apparently the Sean Hudson version is a hard one to find. It's a, it's 172 pages long as opposed to the 240 pages version of the Randall Frakes and Bill Wisher version. And from what I understand, that the Sean Hudson version goes pretty close to the script. Um, there's some differences, like, uh, you know, maybe uh, in terms of stuff that we talk about with novelizations, in terms of like things that are different from the movie. Like when Arnold goes to the police station and he's like, you know, I'll be back, which is the big line. You know, he's my he, in the in the Sean Hudson UK version. He might say something like, "I'll, I'll come back later," <laughs> or something. See you around. Yeah. So, um, and apparently, it's much more kind of streamlined and closer to the pace of what the movie is. Randall Frakes and Bill Wisher, their version comes out later. They probably also because of knowing Cameron, 
they probably had the benefit of having seen the movie, the finished movie first. That answers my question in T2, I was saying, uh, when I read the novelization for T1, I was saying how amazed I was that they there's scenes with Ginger that they're saying she's in her, when they're getting ready to go on the date, Sarah and Ginger, that they're saying like, you know, she's in her Jetsons night, yeah. nighty. And I'm like, how do, you know, how do they know? Because I thought they were written. I was like, yeah. I was saying, you know, that can't be in the scripts, you know, so they must have had close coordination at the same, but that, if you're telling me that the, the, you know, 84 is the movie, they had it, the benefit of a year to see the finished cut. And then that's how they were aided with all this other stuff. They also were like close person. They also knew and were friends with Cameron. Apparently, Frakes had co-directed yeah. a 1980, a 1978 film with Cameron called uh, Xenogenesis, where Wisher was the lead actor in it. And is that when they were doing Roger Corman stuff? I would imagine it has to be around that time or, or you know, whether it was for Corman or, or something. I've actually never heard of the film. I'm sure there are listeners out there that know it and have seen it. Um, yeah. They also reportedly, I don't know where this reports come from. So allegedly they also had a, a possibly a, a significant amount of input into the actual script itself when Cameron was writing it. So they the, might the original uh, Terminator movie. Yeah. So he might've been bouncing ideas off of them or something anyway. Um, with Gail Ann as well. Yeah. And since the version, like you said, since it comes out like basically a whole year or more after the movie does, uh, they probably had the likely had the benefit of having seen the movie because in the novelization, he does say, I'll be back. Um, and there's apparently stuff in the script. I mean, in the, in the U S version, like, uh, you know, stuff where they get finally when they're having that big chase with uh, Sarah and Reese and they finally get stopped by the cops. OK, yeah. And he's going to go out and, you know, and she's like, no, no, Reese, no, drop, no, drop no, the gun. kill you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then there's like, you know, and the cop goes and looks at you the and car. the Cadillac. Yeah. The cop goes and looks at the Terminator's car and he's like, he's gone. And apparently that scene's not in the. The novel, the UK novelization, which goes pretty accurately to the script, so that must have been a scene that maybe got developed after the fact, you know. So, in a way, the f- I wonder how they get them. Then, how how wonder how in that uh, novelization how they're arrested? Then, you know. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I have to. You lose that him. chase sequence, you know. I mean, maybe they maybe in the parking lot. Remember they're. He's given her yeah, that exposition. I mean, that's, All this, everything is gone. That see, that that like the scene might be there, but possibly the way it plays out is different. Um, yeah. It's also, uh, you know, Dion uh, expressed in his in, in the Terminator Two episode, and also to me, kind of off mic, that he really enjoyed the Terminator novelization, um, and I enjoyed it too. But there were things about it where I, when I was reading it, I was like, I really wish this stuff wasn't in there. And I, in my head, I was like, this is probably the stuff that Dion really likes about it. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's our differences of them stopping down to give you the whole a page backstory of a character. Yeah. Well, you know, not like a character who maybe has one line of dialogue yeah. in the movie. Like, you know, it, 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 it paints a picture so wide for me. I'm like, this is great. And you're like, I want the story to go. Or I'm yeah. like, I love the... You know, stop and smell the roses, and you're like, "Come on!" Like the whole um, first, the whole first chapter of the book is all about the guy in the garbage truck. 
Yeah, Delray Goins or Gaines, his name is. Um, he's listening whose to whose name I stole for something else. He's listening to BB King in his truck, and he's reminiscing on about his headphones. <laughs> reminiscing yeah, he's about an ex-football player or something. hurt his knee, and then he's and he, and, he, and he messed up because he had a drug habit or whatever, and, he, and then he and then he got old and he couldn't play anymore. And now he's driving a garbage truck at night, and he's. Worried about the crime in the area because he's he's now going up the the hill to uh, Griffith Observatory to pick up the trash and he's got a gun on him because some people and then he passes those punks and they throw a beer at him the, and then I, you don't realize who they are he's and then I realize I'm, I'm like oh it's the three guys and then uh, Schwarzenegger's going to encounter on his way down yeah so he goes up there he passes them on the parking on the way up and he's getting the you know unloading the dumpster when the T eight hundred arrives and. Uh, I, oh, see, I love all that. Then he he leaves. He right? runs. So everything stops. Well, everything stops, including his 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 player. He's like, what the fuck? Even the even the Walkman is the BB King stops. And he feel, and then like you said, yeah, he runs and he's like, I think I even enjoyed the little side bit where it's like he's one of the one people who who survives the Terminator's wrath because he runs down the woods and the guy, the Terminator. That's another thing because it's weird. If, if if you know they, I believe that they were still inventing stuff because to me the, the 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 Terminator didn't come across like Arnold more. I, see, it's been a year since I read it, um, so I'm, I'm a little stale. And I have my original notes that I wrote for when I took the talking T two, but I remember it to me it didn't seem more like it. It seemed more like the Lance Henriksen Terminator. Well, they that, do talk we, about like know, we, him. Del, what's his name? Del Rey. What's the what's the garbage guy's name? I think it's Del Roy or Del Rey. Del Rey Gain G I N E S. He makes it some note of like that he <clears throat> when he sees the Terminator. Yeah, but like that's he could have seen that guy on the football field. So I would imagine that he's big in stature. He makes some kind yeah. of correlation to like he's as big as a lineman on the, but like twice as solid or something. You're like. You know, definitely yeah. like the uh, like the picture of of perfection in terms of musculature, and so I I always I kind of he's sl- naked. We've seen him, yeah, yeah. So I kind of saw him as Arnold, but I'm also seeing him, reading it as someone who's seen the movie a thousand times. Did you um to, uh, to refresh my memory? Does he see the thing arrive, or does he just turn and he sees it as there? Do they describe that like if, you know? I want to say he off. sees the orb. Yeah. And then and that's that's what freaks like, him out, right? And, and like runs. a flash of light, and then he ends up running and uh, uh, going down, jumping a fence. Yeah, because he's scared shitless, and he's hoping that the punks are going to slow him down. Yeah, but and because uh, because the the Terminator does regard him, and the Terminator do, do they do they call the guy? Does he say Negro in it or color? Doesn't the Terminator say something? Maybe it's his in his, term, his Terminator vision. Yeah. Yeah, because he he sizes the guy up in the guy's weight and sees the limp, and realizes he isn't really a threat. Let him go because he also doesn't fit the body type the Terminator needs. Yeah, and then the Terminator decides to go the other way because, and then he dances when he encounters the punks. Yeah, but they talk about the, the Delroy jumps a fence, rolls down a hill, maybe hurts his knee again or his thigh, his I think his like hip. But he's like, you know, I'm glad I'm out of there, and I don't know how I'm going to explain this to my bosses that, that I left the truck. <laughs> You I know, know, but, it's but he like, needs the paycheck. It's like you know, it's like it's all you really feel. Yeah, for. It's like it's the you first know. chapter. It's just like pages and pages about this guy who takes up like four seconds of screen time in yeah. the movie. What the hell is this? In the movie, and then uh, like I've always wanted to learn about him. <laughs> and then there's like when term when term they, and then the book calls him Terminator. 
when Terminator yeah. shows up. Uh, yeah, not the, which is, uh, yeah, I found that interesting. It doesn't even call him the Terminator. It's like, and then when Terminator goes to the payphone to look in, in the, uh, oh, in the, in the yellow pages or the white pages of like Sarah Connors, yeah. there's a guy on the phone. Yeah, he pull. Hey, man, you got a serious attitude problem, that guy. So they go into like that guy's backstory about like calling his wife or some shit, like on the phone. <laughs> he's arguing with her, and he wants to come back home, and he's fighting, and then he he gets thrown away, and he realizes it's not the right time. The guy looks a little too crazy to to mess with the guy, but he tells him off. Yeah, I mean, even you know, look at uh, what's his face who passed away. Who uh, I think I brought this up in the um, in the T two where. Um, uh, uh, what's his name from the cor- the Corman? Uh, oh, Dick uh, Miller. Miller. Dick Miller. They talk about how he's a transplant from Boston, yeah, and he yeah. came here, and he's and he's got a gun, and he's and gee, the last like his last thoughts in life are, "I wish I stayed in Boston" or something like <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, or Maine or something. Like he's a yeah, yeah, yeah. you know that all that stuff I enjoy. Um, so I, you know, but what I like they 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 add this other level of stuff, like uh, for instance, when he's killing the women. He's he's got his knife on him and he's making a surgical incision into what their thigh or their calf. Or it's a, I think it's their, like a, close to their ankle. Yeah, and he's looking for something, and then he realized this is how he's able to. After he kills the Sarah, the first two Sarah Connors, he does this incision, and he realizes that he's not able to ID her because he knows her name. He doesn't have a picture. It's like what they say in the exposition in the movie. Yeah. But this was an extra way to verify that if it's her or not, that she has some um, yeah. in- mental metal implant from an injury in her leg, That and then he doesn't find it on the first two Terminators. Or so it's, the, the ID is negative. Sarah's, I mean. So the ID yeah. is negative. So yeah, I found well, that like astonishing. There's parts of the... I I like that, and I also don't like that. At this. So there's, I like it for some reasons, and I like it for other reasons. It comes out in the... That... Uh, Spoiler alert. You know, it's part of the things that's they're making thinking it's a serial killer, but it's like Sarah Connors. And then there's this other thing, which is both of them have, you know, like injuries to the leg where he looked for this mutilation. Um, And so they ask, they ask Reese about that when they're interrogating Reese in the interrogation scene in the LAPD. And he explains that, what basically what Steon's saying, which is that scene where we learn like the compu- the computers didn't know everything about her, uh, Sarah. All they had is a name and the place, the city. They don't have an address. And he says, and the other, th- and they're like, well, what about the mutilation of the leg? And like the only other thing that they had is that she had a pin put in to her leg. But John told me that this happened, that that happened later. So Sarah doesn't have that pin through the through the movie, yeah. but the Terminator doesn't know that. So what I don't like about it is I've always liked it's far fetched or maybe even slightly ridiculous or too coincidental, but I've always liked the fact that when he when the when Terminator kills um Oh he th- uh, what what's her face? Her, um the, the friend the, uh, uh, I just said her name before. Yeah, I know. Not Trixie. <laughs> uh, Jesus, I just said I just uh, said her name. You Ginger. Just said Ginger. When he kills Ginger, Ginger. it's like yeah. Ginger. The fact that he knows that it's not Sarah is because Sarah calls on the machine in the movie. Yeah, yeah it's like this shitty twist of fate. You know what I mean? That yeah. like 
she calls at exactly the wrong time. Um, yeah. And now, so what happens is that doesn't become important anymore because once he carves up Ginger's leg, he's going to know it's not Sarah Connor, or at least suspect that it's not Sarah Connor. So that part, I, for that reason, I don't like it. But why I do like it is that it further it, it further plays into this like the cycle of the chicken or the egg aspect of the movie. Because what that pin, you know, obviously we have the fact, spoiler, if you haven't seen Terminator, that Kyle Reese ends up being John Connor's father. (laughs) Another aspect of this is that uh, also that the thing that you and I almost cried over when we talked about it the first time, because I listened to the old episode, is that we're talking about the picture and that Kyle Reese says to her, he's like, I always wondered what you were thinking about when that picture was taken. And it turns out she was thinking about him when that picture yeah. was taken. When that little Mexican kid comes over and takes the picture yeah. at the end. And he's like, his father's going to beat him. <laughs> his father's going to beat him. <laughs> Good hustle, kid. But what further advances that idea of the chicken or the egg kind of thing is that she ends up getting that pin as a result of having her leg shattered or her like her bone shattered by the piece of debris of the Terminator exploding at the end of the movie. Yeah. Which is at Cyberdyne. Yeah. Which, which is, is later on. yeah, which is one of the few, uh, Outs- actually additional scenes. scenes of yeah. in the movie, which is, I mean, in the book, which is we find two guys find the chip and then they end up taking it from and debris. Yeah, in the debris of the, yeah. at the at the climax of the movie, and that makes more sense because I always said like, well, if in Terminator Two when they have this arm that preserved and they're looking at it, and you're saying the chip, what happened to everything else yeah. that was there, and why didn't the cops then validate her story? And it's because we're jumping to the end, but at the end of it, two workers who work at because they they don't really talk in the movie where they break in, and I think it's a deleted scene in one of the. Um, you know, it's just a shot up. You see them doing it, but they pan up, and it's Cyberdyne is the name of the factory they broke into at the yeah. end to get away from the T eight hundred. Well, that's in a deleted scene of the movie. In the book, yeah, yeah. In the book, it's like these two guys that work for this bigger conglomerate company. They they steal the chip and they go and they start their own company. And but, that, but they work for don't they work for no Cyberdyne? No, because the com- it's like it talks about how like. One guy, like Jack, goes up to Gray. He's like, look what I found. And they're like, what the fuck is that? And he's like, I don't know. It's some crazy chip. And he's like, we should tell our bosses. And the one guy's like, no, don't tell them. Like, why should we make them millions of dollars? Like, screw them. And then it's like, it's like, and it's weird. It all plays out in like a paragraph of, of uh, in, in yeah. the book. And it's like, what? And they're like Steve Forbes or Steve Jobs. And yeah. they're like, the and so thing. Jack's like, well, then what are we going to do? And it's like, Greg sees the glimmer in his eye. And then it talks about how like. You know, six months from then, they decide they take they leave their company. They leave the company they're working at. They start their own company. They patent the the chip. They wait to see if they get sued for patenting it. And then it's like, and then they, you know, then they uh, incorporate. And then like two months after that, they can't come up with a name because all the good names are taken. And then Jack comes running. Or I don't, I'm making up the names. I think it's Jack and Greg, but I don't remember for sure. And he comes running. He's like, I got the name. I came up with the perfect name. And it was Cyberdyne was the name that they came up with for. Uh, yeah. So it gives that's like the one kind of extra scene. And then it goes into like day 26 is 
because it's all split up into days the first day and then it's like in the in the police station starts kind of like the second day because we passed midnight and then the third day is like after the sex scene and then they go uh and so it's like on the third day is when you know these two schmoes find the chip and then it's like day 26 is sarah out you know uh driving driving to south america which is the end of the movie yeah, which is the, the real end of the movie She's starting to show show a little bit her, her tummy. Um, isn't there an opening scene where there where there where that's not in the movie where, if I remember correctly, there's a battle uh, in the future and Sarah has just been killed. You know, I thought so because there was something, but it's like it. I that, yeah. maybe that's something that happens in the second book when you were talking about it because I didn't. Because okay, I think it just starts with Del Rey is my recollection. I mean, I, I read it so I rem- quickly. See, now if I'm, <laughs> yeah, I wonder if I'm, you, you know, you, that might, maybe that is right then. Because then, uh, I, maybe it is the beginning of the second book, that she's killed at the beginning. And what's this? And John just heard about it, and he feels really bad for John. I thought this was setting up Kyle going back. And, she, he's, and then Kyle, um, he only hung out with John a couple times, but then John took interest in him really quickly. And then John gives him the Polaroid. People have heard about this Polaroid and seen it. And sometimes I think it says people would even hold on to it and borrow it, it, it for him for a little bit. And he gives Kyle the Polaroid for to, to hold on to. And then well, he does you know, talk about John giving John the Polaroid and not knowing why John gave it to him. There is that stuff, but it's later in the book. Yeah, it's not at the beginning. He does talk about like John calling, you know, calling him into his unit. And not knowing why John yeah. would do that, and at some point, an earlier date, John gives him this picture, and you know, a lot of the soldiers had pictures of Sarah. They they considered them good luck, but this those were all copies of those were just like cutouts of pictures. Whereas, like, so that John, sounds like everything John gave uh, him like a, an, an original photo of her, and so he's yeah, gonna, and he carried it with her everywhere he went. Um. But then she's not killed in the future. Like there's no thing I, that she just I don't died. Recall and then, that happening. Okay, because really, then people are like freaked out about it because it just happened. My uh, maybe that is in but the, my the reading of the section is really awful. So, <laughs> so as is mine. I read like a, a crazy horse. I can't remember anything. I do remember that their hideout is in like the D level parking lot of the ABC Entertainment uh, Center in Century City. Is like where they're in the basement of of where that's where when they have that dream sequence in the movie where he's telling her about HKs and she falls asleep on him and they have yeah, the yeah. thing about the dogs and stuff. And that scene is really heartbreaking when they're talking about the people who were, when he's walking around in there and the kids who were growing up and they're the, the woman who's gone mad who just stares at the TV with the flame and like, you know, all that kind of stuff is, uh, is really juicy. You know, the backstory they come up with. Um, they even... Uh, which I think I said in in the second in the last podcast in Terminator Two, where they make Silverman gay, yeah, yeah. Uh, the 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 psychiatrist because he gets a because they have he gets a page, and the a page when he looks down at his page when Arnold passes him when he's leaving the police station, it's page uh, he gets a, the number of its home and he thinks he's like oh it's Douglas and what does Douglas want to talk to me now and then doesn't he hesitate for a moment he's about to go back inside and call him but he decides not to and he leaves yeah that's almost like the twist of fate where yeah, it's yeah. um you know the uh, if he had gone back in all the shit would have went down and he would have been caught in it yeah so uh, there's a few other things regarding the future but 
um, you know, more of the stuff that I just mentioned, which is some of Kyle's stuff and um, some of the backstory of the He's picture. recruited. You know, it, when we but talked, when we did the original episode, I talked about how it's in the movie, in the film itself, it's interesting, that scene where he's describing her and they fall asleep in that, like, drainage tube or whatever. And, uh, yeah, and I'm like, I'm like, it's weird because, like, we had a flashback, which is the flashback you're talking about. With uh, and he's looking at the picture, and then the Terminator shows up, and he drops the picture, and it burns and everything. And uh, and I was like, it's weird. It's like, is she dreaming that, or is he thinking about that? And in the book, they kind of handle it, um, where it's kind of both, which is interesting. Which is like he's reciting it to her, and she's we're seeing it through her imagination. Yeah. So like we're only seeing what he tells her. So in that scene, we don't see that the picture is Sarah because he's um, like embarrassed to tell her. So she sees that he's looking at a picture and that it's clear that the picture is important to him in that scene and that it burns, but she doesn't know what the picture is because he doesn't tell her that it's a picture of you until they're in the hotel room. Yeah. So he, she's like, we're seeing it like in her mind's eye of looking at it. So it's like it is third person, like where she's watching Reese in this story in her mind, and also it's a lot of like throughout the book she talks about the little Sarahs, which are kind of like her her warning or like her conscience or almost like you shouldn't say you know like the little Sarahs are telling her not to do things, um, yeah, you know nothing crazy, you know like not like in a schizophrenic kind of way, but like in a of uh, you know like you know. Having her having the impulse to say something shitty to her manager at Big Jeff's, you know what I mean, <laughs> and like yeah. the little Sarah's kind of telling her not to do it, and so it's a yeah. you know like in a, what you could do in a book, which is have more of like what's going on internally. Um, but I thought that scene was kind of interesting only because we talk about that in the in the podcast when we did the podcast of like, well, who's who's imagining that scene that we're seeing? Is it him or her? Yeah. And, it's kind of ambiguous. Yeah, but in the book, it kind of clears up. In the book, they take like a very definite position as to like yeah. we're seeing her imagining him telling her what's happening. Yeah, they is, even speculate. I like in the book because they talk about when Skynet becomes uh, when they make Skynet, the computer itself has an R and D program. I guess it's is it. I guess it's after Skynet blows everybody up because it's Skynet who develops the um, the time displace equipment. So it's not even people. So yeah. it's the computer discovers how to time travel. So it's not like we come up with that in the near future. No. I think it's at some point Skynet's the one, the computer brain comes up with, and figures out how to, how to time travel. And uh, uh, I think it's what brand new technology. They haven't done it yet or they tried or they don't know if it's untested. Um, well, they, they don't know that about the, rec- they, they definitely yeah. Reese talks about how, like, they didn't know what was going to happen. They talks about like, um, you know, they had no idea when they sent him back, if he would just end up back there as cool, like chilling meat or cooling meat or something, <laughs> you know, like they, yeah. he would not survive. Uh, they, they also go in, it. they also go into the whole thing where in the beginning, when both of them come, that they're covered in some kind of gel. Yeah, because they have to lube them up, because it would burn. It would burn them. Uh, 
the, so, the time travel, the, 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 the whole process would burn them, so they have to be covered in like a, a retardant gel. And so when they show up in the book, they talk about how they're covered in this ash because yeah. it's like the, the gel has burned on their outside. So when, uh, like, as, Termin- as Terminator approaches the punks, I guess it's raining in the book. And so it's like it's washing off the ash and Del Rey notices when he appears that he looks like a, some kind of Greek statue or something. Cause he's covered in like this white ash. Yeah. So it's just cool little details like that, that kind of in a way, I don't know, just add little plausibilities, I guess, make things like a little more technologically plausible. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's fun. Just little. Yeah. But yeah, they do go into how Skynet is the one that created it and how they didn't know if Kyle was going to make save and survive it, like it's kind of blind. Yeah. Sent him back there hoping <laughs> for the best. Really. Yeah. And then I, and then knowing that like the time that they sent another, and I think the T 800s are brand new, right? Which is something they go into in his flashbacks of the infiltration of, of aren't there different. Do they don't, is it, do they open the, am I, maybe I'm, I'm again, messing with T two novelization, but don't they realize they go in, do they, take the place and they run in is this or is this t1 or t2 am i is any of this in where they they, they realize that one t- of the machines are gone it might be t2 so they realize it okay because there was Cause they realize one were, of the t800s is gone because my recollection this is my recollection to our discussion in t2 is that yeah they like send them back at like the same time or something like that which plays yeah. it, which also plays into like the more recent Dark Fate or whatever, which is like cyber, which is like Skynet sent them all back at the same time in different points in time. Yeah, and try to just be uh, insurance policies. And so, like, and I might be making this up, but I feel like this is what we discussed in Terminator Two, which is like they send back the T eight hundred and the T one thousand at the same time, and they send back the T eight hundred. Arnold back to 1984 and they send back in case in case that didn't in case he wasn't successful they'll get him in as a kid in two, in, two, in 1990 whatever yeah yeah and I feel like that's maybe where some of the confusion is happening with that opening scene because it's connected to the 19 it's connected to the first one in that okay. way I don't remember yeah I'm, I'm making it up now so I apologize yeah. well it's in, it's in it's in that would have been a, that would have been really good for how it should have happened if yeah. that's not how it happened I, I do that I do that all the time <laughs> but uh, I feel like in one of the books they talk about that like you know they open the room and they see like there's like different models there's like a woman there's a you know like the Arnold looking and then one of them is gone and they realize shit they just used the equipment and they gotta send somebody else back you know and um, I think at T2, they talk about how they captured the T-800. Or he goes into Arnold, says how they caught him and, and they shocked him and turned him off. Or they were able to short-circuit him. That's how they're able to reprogram him in Terminator 2, the T-800. That's the next. So getting back to that. That's yeah, that's the, the next one. That's the next one. <laughs> I enjoyed a lot the Terminator character in this. The, you know, the whole idea of him, how he works and his his tactical you know, he's at the motel, he's under an assumed name, but he realizes that he can't bring too much heat to the to his hideout, quote unquote. So he that's why he's going out the window. If he's all beat up and shot, he can't um he can't 
uh, blow his cover and his hideout. So that's why he goes into the window and starts fixing himself. And then after the big police uh, shootout at the police station, um, his, uh, I forget what they say, his pump, his, 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 his life for like his blood pump is shot. And, and, and that's the reason why the skin on him dies and is starting to rot because he's lost the, uh, the, the, the pump or whatever the, 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 the thing was that connected to his body that, that kept his, you know, the organic material going. So, you know, he's talking about how he's, he's got flies going into his eyes yeah, yeah. that he's having to, you know, so all that stuff makes it kind of sound really more grisly that he's a rotting corpse. Like I love like he's a rotting corpse now. He's a zombie, you know, almost, you know, yeah. that with a terrible smell. They even talk about like at the end, because when they blow up the truck, and they think they've won. They talk about how the Terminator is using the heat. Oh, it's like a recharge. Yeah, he's using the heat, but he's also just waiting for the organic matter matter to burn off because it'll restrict his movement. So he's actually laying there waiting for the skin to burn off so that when he goes after her, he'll be he'll be able to be more free of movement instead of having like this burned, yeah. charred uh, organic manner kind of like hindering his movement as he as he chases her. So that's why there's like this extended time where they're like, oh, we won. He's just laying in yeah. wait until he's free <laughs> of human of his own human element. Yeah, which is kind of cool. and isn't he doesn't don't doesn't he retain some of the heat too? Like it recharges it's him or something, something about like he like it's something also like, he, like he's, he's able to turn it. Yeah, it's also like he's recharging his batteries. Uh, with the heat from from the fire as well, something they they make a uh, indication, uh, some kind of like uh, implication of that also in that scene. And I don't have the book on me. I didn't bring it over your house tonight. And your your book's up in your your your, your room and uh, your parents. But I'm, there's a page where there's like they tell the stats of which I found so fascinating of how long it'll live if it or because it's also remember it's telling it's like turning cycles off. So yeah. when he's when he's at home. It's like he's going into like standby mode, so and th- and this is a way to conserve his battery power, and you know what I mean. Or if he, so, I loved all that where it's like you know he can go balls out at full power, but he'll only last ten years. Where if he's doing what he's supposed to do, which is going to standby when he's not doing stuff, or yeah, you know, yeah. and, and it turns stuff, stuff, some stuff off, he's able to preserve his battery power. You know, yeah, that uh, aspect of it is is definitely cool. Like more of like you said, some of the tactical. Um, motivations for what he's doing but also just learning more about kind of the inner workings of how the machine itself works the thought of this and so like i i i really got more of him as a character which is really i dug that and uh aspects of yeah like you know why he's doing stuff or why he's choosing this or that and you know or his his strategy of you know going after the the the, the sarah's and then fixing himself going to the gun store and getting you know and his motivations of why he's doing what he's doing, uh, which I find really cool. Even the two cops, you know, Paul Winfield and Lance Henriksen, it's like I wanted a, a, a book on them, the partners, because I thought they were so they were cool together. I really enjoyed their yeah. relationship. Well, they're which great is something in the movie from the too. movie. I re- yeah, and I, you know, yo mama, like I enjoyed all that stuff. So I, fi- you know, that's a great. I wanted you know a whole, a whole offshoot of books. Someone should do some fan novels of the the prequel of them, you know, in, as L.A. cops. Yeah. Now. Partially, some uh, a difference between the UK Sean Hudson uh, version versus the 
uh, Frakes Wisher American version of the novelization, whereas we just talked a lot about how the uh, Frakes Wisher version goes into, you know, like more character development and even kind of like subplots of like really uh, peripheral characters in the movie. Apparently what Sean Hudson's version does is it really ups the gore factor of the descriptions of what happens. So there's a website called uh, thebedlamfiles.com, and on that site, uh, a guy named Adam Groves wrote an article called A Tale of Two Terminators, just to give proper credit, which he kind of outlines a great, what I thought was a great example. We're going to put the, this as an extra on the podcast. Of the two versions, so which is in the Sean... Uh, in the Sean Hudson version of when the Dick Miller gun guy gets shot, which is you actually kind of alluded to uh, that scene earlier of how it plays out. But he says in the, they describe it, the, uh, Sean Hudson describes it as he crashed forward again, a gaping hole through his upper torso, gobbets of lung tissue and fragments of shattered bone stuck to the rear wall plastered on by thick streaks of blood is how he <laughs> describes how the Dick Miller character gets killed. Whereas Franks and Wisher describe it as, and then a second before the shotgun blast in a quiet revelation, he realized that he should have stayed in Maine, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which is what you were alluding to earlier. It's so sad. It's like, Oh, this poor guy who moved out and he got his own business and he's, Thinking, should he go back east, with maybe with his wife or something? Um, even the the way they kill Ginger, and uh, in, in I loved that's one of the highlights of the book of him stalking her and uh, the gun going off and her suddenly falling hard to the ground. I remember, I, I, I forget how it's described since I haven't read it in a year, yeah. but she falls to the ground and she's trying to crawl away, and the thing comes up to her and steps on stuff, and then you know they describe in detail of uh, the second and third round coming out of his gun and and then. Just, you know, just it was just it's just brutal the poor you know her flipping up and crashing really hard and then her thinking about oh she's like i hope my what did she say i hope my mom doesn't find me oh, i think she you doesn't know, want sarah to find her yeah or something like she's like i'm, I'm I, I hope so god that they don't someone doesn't see this is like going through her head yeah. seconds before she dies it's just it's it's terrifying i was like i was like i got so sad i was like oh my god it was so touching you know she was like i hope yeah maybe i hope sarah's not yeah, the one I think who finds me I like think this she thinks she, does, she doesn't want sarah to walk in and find her like this i think like that yeah Some, something to that effect. It's, 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 and that's so horrifying for me <laughs> yeah but one of the reasons why like, i'm kind of interested in the sean hudson version is that it seems to do away with some of the things that I'm not. I'm glad I read in in the in the U.S. novelization, but seems to go at the more of like that breakneck action pace of what the movie is, which is one of the my thing. One of my, in my opinion, one of the great things about that movie is that like that straight ahead roller coaster ride. Once you get in, once you get on the ride, it's just like there's no stopping. Except you know, there's occasional flashbacks. Where you catch your breath and you learn a little bit of exposition through flashbacks yeah. or flash forwards, rather, of like the future. Yeah. But for the most part, it's such, ex- there's so ex- much uh, mo- exposition through action. There's so much momentum in that movie, which gets lost in, in this novel, in the US novelization. And I wonder if it reads faster, if you feel that momentum more in the UK version. Oh, you said there's a difference of what, 60 pages? 
Something like that, yeah. So yeah, there's all that stuff you you cut all that stuff you didn't like out. <laughs> UK's like we got to make it flow. I just wanted you know? to, I just wanted it to to move the yeah, way that keep going. Moves. Um, and the other yeah. thing I wanted to talk about uh, today, other than the novelization, is the score because we talk a little bit about it in the uh, in the original Terminator podcast that we did, but um, since then. I've had books written about, I had a book about film music come out and I've talked to composers. And um, so I feel like I have a different, I feel differently about the score or I feel more strongly about the score in some ways than I would have felt back then when we originally did this, which was either at a time when I was just starting the book or yeah, I was probably, I was probably just starting it back when we did this and movie it, back then. And it, this was, like we said, was the first year. It, we, it didn't even occur to us to try to seek out or get the novelization. Yeah. You know, this is before we even started doing that kind of a thing. So it was just really just us researching and then talking about what we liked about the movie. Yeah, I feel like we know? did this in, yeah, either the first or second year. So it was really early on in, uh, yeah. in, the, in our days of, of podcasting for Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. It's like 2015 maybe, right? Yeah, this might have been 20, 2014 or fifteen. Something like that. Yeah. So um, the score, you know, obviously we talked about, the th- I'm pretty sure we talked, we must have talked about the theme because it's iconic for our generation. Um, I've been lucky enough in recent times, recent years, to get to know Brad Fidel, the, the uh, composer, a little bit. And I've talked to him about the score. And so I figured I would relay some of the aspects of the score that uh, I like, but also things that he's told me about the score. And uh, on kind of like a, not theory, but in a way of, one of the things that I really love about the score is that not just the percussion of the main theme, like the dun-dun-dun-dun-dun, but even when we just see the Terminator, there's like this four-beat kind of like synthesizer thing, which is, which in Brad's imagination of creating the score was that's the heartbeat of the Terminator. Like it wouldn't beat like a human heart. Yeah. So he creates like this atmosphere through synthesizers of um, an eerie atmosphere, but it's also very much representing in an auto, in a sonic way, the Terminator and machines. And so the clanking of the, of the sounds that he he gets and the, and the big beat. Well, like, it's, it's such a, 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 a you know there's all different kind of soundtracks of the time. You know we have synthesizers, we have orchestral, we have all. It's such a unique score for me to hear it. And you know I think at the time I might have even related to like Tom Waits ish in his later career where you know that like you're saying the clanking and yeah. the the real industrial sound of it. It's one of the things that stuck with me certainly just that sound because you don't hear that a lot. On, on soundtrack recordings and how he uses it. And, it. and because of that, it's so iconic. It's so... Yeah, and definitely. Uh, but, mesmerizing. And, and certainly there are sounds coming out of his equipment from 1984 that today sounds a bit dated. But there's just very few specific sounds when I watch the movie or I listen to the score now. I'm like, yeah, that sounds very 80s. For the most part, in my personal opinion, sure, it sounds antiquated in terms of electronic music by today's standards, but it doesn't feel dated. You know what I mean? Like, it works, for me, it works so in unison 
for the movie for the most part. And only does it sound dated when there's like these big like crash sounds that sound like almost like they're almost supposed to sound like an orchestra and it's not an orchestra. So it sounds a little bit dated or like a sound that's supposed to sound like a horn, but it's a synthesized horn. So that sounds dated. But other than that, the stuff that's supposed to sound electronic, it works both as score, but also as like sound design in a way. Like I said, like that, you know, like it's, it's the turn. It's his heartbeat that we're hearing. And what's really, what I love about it, is that then we have the theme, like the melody. The da-na-na, da-na-na, which represents humanity. And like, you know, the melody comes in and it's, though they're, it's man versus machine, the music is this beautiful duet <laughs> of, of humanity and machine that's happening in unison. In harmony, you know. Pete, preach on, brother Blake. <laughs> preach on. And so, there's that aspect of it. So then, I talked to him about. I asked him about how the main theme later becomes the love theme, which is that he plays it that real tender, which is played on piano, kind of later in the movie. And I wanted to talk to him about like how you can use a single theme in different ways throughout a movie. And he said something that makes complete total sense, but something that just didn't occur to me. And it's when he described it, it almost felt like, oh, how stupid. I should have, what a stupid question, because it's such an obvious answer. Um, which is that he said, well, to him, it wasn't two separate themes. Like, it wasn't two different things. There wasn't a main theme and a love theme, because the love scene is when Reese impregnates her with John Connor, like he, he's kind of like they're, uh, the conception of human of the future of humanity is in that scene, which is the whole point of the movie. So it's not some like it, that love scene is not just two people in this crazy circumstance happen to find love on the side of it. And they have a, tryst in some you know cheap motel (laughs) that love scene is the entire point it's the entire movie encapsulated in like one scene which is like that their love is what's create was what creates hope for the future and what needs to be protected and why the whole movie is taking place and so when he put it in those terms i was like shit (laughs) i was like you're absolutely right like i don't know why i didn't see it that way to begin with and this is how he's he's relaying it to you of his his yeah, thought process. Of like he didn't of think of it as two different things because it's not two different things. It's the it's one thing. The whole it's that their love is the point of the movie. It is really what the whole movie is about. And there's like cool trivial things like that clanking sound that we were just talking about. Um, he couldn't figure out how to do it with a synthesizer, so what he ended up doing was he took a uh, iron skillet, a frying pan. And he found that if he face out like the top of the firing pan towards the microphone and he just hit it with a hammer on the back of it. So it was just, that's how he came up with that clanking sound. Um, he also talked to me a little bit about 
because uh, I asked him, I said, look, as a composer, you're coming into a movie pretty late in the process usually, especially in America. Europe seems to bring on the composer maybe even before the movie's shot. They know who's going to compose it, and they're working on ideas for the score that early. But in America, uh, from my experience of talking with composers in Hollywood and whatnot, you, a composer doesn't really come on until after the rough cut's already done, and maybe they have six to eight weeks, maybe three months at most, to create the music for it. So I said, I, I was asking him, there's got to be this, when you're talking to directors about their picture before you see it, and they're either pitching you the idea or you're trying to get the job, there has to be instances where a director tells you what they're trying to do, tells you what the movie is, tells you their intent, and then when you watch the movie, it's just not there. Like when you watch the cut, like they didn't achieve it, and you just don't see it. Um, and I was like, I would love to know what it was like to hear Jim Cameron talk about Terminator, like such a high concept movie, and then watch the cut. And like, what, what did you think? And he's like, it's, he pointed out, it was interesting that you bring that up because that is a tough thing for a composer. And you don't want to be like, what? Like you, the, the, your movie stinks. Like you, you can't say that. <laughs> to somebody but there are often yeah. times when a, a director or filmmaker obviously feels very strongly about their project and um, they have to have confidence in it whether it's false or not false or what's the point of making the project or how you got to get it sold and all that stuff he's like but there are times when you hear a director or filmmaker tell you what their movie is and then when you watch it it's just not there and then it becomes the job of the music to try to fix it, kind of, in some ways. He's like, but when he's like, when I watched Terminator, Gail Ann Hurd and Jim Cameron came over to his his house, his studio or whatever, and he sat down and he watched it with them and he asked them to show it to him without any music on it, like no temp track. And he said it was he was instantly impressed because when Jim Cameron told him what this movie was, he's like, Yeah right <laughs> like we'll see we'll see what you have like what you captured but terminator was an instance where he cameron captured exactly what he set out to capture it was on the celluloid and he talked about how he watched it with no music which is certainly not forgiving for a movie that's a big a sci-fi movie or an action movie or a suspense movie that relies so much on sound design and music he's like but i didn't want to see it with music because i didn't want to see it I didn't want to have, he didn't want his ideas to be tainted by a temp score. And he said at the, at the end of the movie when the Terminator, you keep on thinking the Terminator's dead, and he's like, well, I'm watching the movie in a studio with Gail Ann Hurd and Jim Cameron, and he said, I said out loud, if he gets up one more time, I'm leaving. And he's like, and I didn't realize I said it out loud. <laughs> Jesus. He's like, I was, he's like, I thought I said it in my head, but I said it out loud. He's like, that's how involved he was. Like it was almost, he's, he's from Long Island. So he spent a lot of time in New York city in the sixties and into the seventies. And he's got a fascinating history as a musician, uh, by, by itself. But so he, you know, he's like, I felt like it was like a moment of like, you know, being a, being on 42nd street in the grindhouse theaters and he's like when you're when you're yelling at the screen um so that's how engaged he was 
by the movie when he first saw it. And uh, he didn't have the job necessarily, uh, but he had heard from his agent that Jim Cameron had been listening to a tape of samples that they had sent him in his car, and that's why Jim wanted to talk to him, because he liked his music. By that point, Brad Fidel had worked in some low-budget movies. He had done uh, Just Before Dawn for uh, Jeff Lieberman, who we talk about on the show a lot, who also did Squirm and Blue Sunshine. But he had also worked a lot in television movies. He had done some really high-end television movies back when television movies were high end. So he was making television movies that starred people like Anthony Hopkins and Vanessa Redgrave and Jimmy Stewart, you know, like real high end, top of the line television productions, but he hadn't worked a ton in uh film. He was a, he had spent a lot of time in New York, so he was doing a lot of stuff in New York and he describes the LA film music scene as being um a little bit of like a club. And it was hard to break into that club. So Terminator was still relatively early in his feature film um, career and certainly what put him on the map, um, even though he had done other stuff before that. But uh, I forget where I was going with that. But uh, Uh, him um, talking about him getting on the scene and the different and then him. It's his first as a live action film. Oh, I know where I was going with it. So anyway, because he had had such a hard time, it had become a it had become a bit of a rat race for him, and he was at he was at a moment where he was uh, feel like he needed some kind of creative output. So where I was going with this is that Jim Cameron had been listening to his stuff, came to visit him, they watched the movie, he felt like it was going well, but Brad said that he definitely didn't feel like he had the move he had gotten the job yet he was being considered for the job coincidentally on top of all this he's having some kind of creative uh dissatisfaction Dilemma. he wants to do something yeah. for himself so he goes back to his roots and on the side of all the film work he's doing he's he's doing a kind of a concerto piece of piano and synthesizer for himself yeah and it just so happens to be uh, feel similar to the kinds of things he would do for Terminator. It's a little bit dark. It's a little bit industrial sounding. And so he says he, he never did it before and he's never done it since where he played somebody something for a director that was his own, that was not something that he had done for, for a movie because usually people nobody wants to hear that. They want to hear the recognizable things. So before Cameron left, he said, let me play you something. And so he put this piece up and he played this piece that was, as Brad describes, nothing close to the... Like, it was not the Terminator theme. But there was a similarity in feel. And... He said, that's when Cameron said, okay, you got the job. So he played on this piece that he just happened to be working on on the side, and it's not in the movie, but it was like the perfect kind of audition piece. That It was enough to yeah, secure him. He, Brad just happened to be like in the right headspace at that time for this movie to occur. It's a lot of, when you talk to composers, any creative person that's had some kind of success or probably even not creative persons, as successful people in, in general, you, f- you, re- you start to realize when you talk to enough of them how much timing and fate 
kind of plays into yeah. it. Just being in the right time at the right place or knowing the right person at the right moment, making a phone call to someone you haven't talked to in 20 years. And like, that's the time, you know, or running to somebody, running into somebody on a train, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. the connection is just, just so like, crazy. Timing is just right. And you realize it's like how important that is. And I think he even pointed, cause I pointed that out to him. He said, well, any kind of success comes from luck and talent, but you can't have like you, you can't be successful without both. Like you have, if you're in the right time at the right place, you can be there. But if you're not talented enough to pull it off, you pass you by. You're not going to get the job, or it's not going to be successful. Or you can be talented all you want, but if you don't get that, if you're not in the right place at the right time, nobody's ever going to know that 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 talent's there. So uh, those are just some of the things about the score and and Brad that I I've uh, I've learned. Over the last, he did year. the second one now, right? Didn't he too? He also did the second one, and what's interesting about the second one is Cameron didn't want to use any of the original score except for the theme, so he had to go yeah. completely back to the drawing board. Um, and the, the second one has a lot more organic stuff in it, like uh, real instruments, less synthesizer. Which one comes from budget, but two also comes from the fact that the movie is much more about the humans you know it's much it's about the kid and it's about how the how arnold as the terminator is becoming more human through his relationship with a young john connor and so it kind of warranted a more organic warmer sound whereas the first movie you know we talked about this with the first score uh the first podcast which is like the the first movie is very much a horror movie and the way it plays out is very much like a horror movie and brad's score in a lot of places is very much like a horror movie and when i was watching the movie recently and you have those chase scenes and like his music is just like completely chaotic and frantic. Yeah. Sure. And it just like, it keeps you uneasy. Uh, uh, there's a, yeah, there's a, but it's just, yeah, it's like, there's a, there's a, a thing in music. Um, I want to say it's, they call it aleatoric and it's, a piece of music where they leave it up to chance to the player. Like you don't write that stuff and the player does it. It's almost improvisational, but it's um, a lot of that stuff comes out. Like and I would, if I talked to Brad again, I would have to ask him about that because it sounds the stuff. When you hear Eleatoric music, it sounds like that. It's like, there's no specific rhythm. It's very disjointed because it's just like, you're just hitting things. You know what I mean? You're just hitting notes without uh, at random, almost random. There's an, there's an element of randomness to it. So you, get interesting sounds but it doesn't it's not as pleasing to the ear as like a regular melody and so a lot of that feels that way to me because it just like it's just mayhem on in the score during those scenes and it's part of helps that momentum it makes those scenes uh really uh you know you feel angsty when you watch those scenes because you really are like no it's just it's What you're seeing is action, but then the music is creating this really hectic atmosphere. And I asked him uh, about the momentum of that movie and how I feel like the music does a lot. And he said, thanks. And, uh, you know, I hope that was certainly the intent, but that was all Cameron. He said, he said, Jim knew exactly what he wanted. The, the, you know, he was always like, just keep going. 
You know, like it was, he's always Cameron knew he wanted that breakneck speed, the momentum of it. And he said, even in, and this is a story that he's related many times on different things, which is when they break, when they escape the, the police station, when he showed Cameron that scene, he had added the theme as they, as they escape. So they break out it's like, and it created this big triumphant moment of like the heroes, you know, and Cameron was like, no, no, like get rid of that. He's like, I can't let the audience go there. I don't want you do that. And it puts the audience of like, they've, they're winning, you know, like this is a moment to celebrate. He's like, just keep going. Just keep it going. <laughs> I don't want any moment for the audience to relax and think well, that they, they yeah, and think that when they, they can. when they leave, yeah, you hear He's, that you know it kind of fades, da, 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 you know, it fades off like it's yeah. you know the the terror of the police station's on fire and the music just fades out. You know, with the Terminator walking out, you hear his boots, yeah, you know, but, leaving the trip. But the Cameron was so in tune, his gun jams. Cameron was so in tune with how he wanted the audience to perceive it. That he yeah. knew that if you put that there, they're going to let their large, their guard down, even if, if yeah. it's for a second. Like just keep, just keep moving forward. They didn't win anything. They didn't. There was nothing to, to be triumphant about. They survived. <laughs> yeah. But they've survived to just be terminated later. You know what I mean? So, uh, a lot of Fidel, rightfully so, gives a lot of credit to Cameron for like his, his vision and really being a genius when it comes to that of knowing what the end result was going to be and being able to capture a really beautiful, intricate story. Uh, that's also hugely, uh, ambitious and, and being able to do it with a low budget with still semi primitive, special effects by the mid eighties. I mean, it really is a, you know, you talked about, we talked about how that script is perfect. I mean, there's like just the aspect that I talked about, like where Reese is like, I was wondering what you're thinking about in that picture. And it's him, you know, or, you know, the, the, uh, just, or little things that we talked about in the original podcast, which is like the machine, her, like Ginger's voice on the, on the answering machine is like, it's just a machine, but machines love yeah, me. Need love too. <laughs> yeah, you know, there's just the tech. Even the fact that the place is called Tech Noir, which is like dark, yeah, dark technology, yeah. is like the the translation yeah. of that, um, and which is what the movie is about. I know it's on Pico. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So. Uh, yeah. It's all those little elements that just add into just just and, and keep it all going. And it's even you know, uh, it's it's. Yeah, it's. I mean, even the the uh, the the pop music in it, I freaking love. Well, by, even uh, that, you know, there's one. I the, forget the, who, like you, I'm forgetting who does who does the music, but um, their name's uh, Tainin Kane. I'm trying to probably saying this wrong, and uh, Triangles. Yeah, and they do burning in the third degree photo play. You can't do that, and. Uh, I think that's the, those are the three pop songs but even, that are in it. But even like Photoplay or one of the songs, it must be Photoplay, the lyrics of that song, like the, the hook, the chorus of that song is like about looking at pictures through, the, through time. Yeah. Which is, you know, mirrors the, the fact that Reese yeah, is looking through this picture through time. <laughs> you know, like even, even, his, even Cameron's selection of the pop music, which weren't hits. By any stretch of the no, imagination. no, I uh, yeah, 
you know, maybe they, they were minor hits at the time. Maybe because of the movie, they became hits. But even he cleverly chose songs in a lot of cases that even though they were kind of almost, you know, arguably ridiculous pop songs had some kind of relevance to the story that he was creating. Well, and they, and they, and they fit in the sense of that they're, um, you know, they, they fit in the world when they're going into twe- tech noir. That would yeah. be a song in the mid eighties you think would be playing there. Well, you know, or, the scene uh, of, you know, well, the when scene she's exercise, she puts the headphones on. Yeah. And she's, but like the know. scene in tech noir, when the Terminator shows up and you hear that, uh, what's the burning, uh, burning in the third degree. Yeah. And you hear that, like the, I, right now. Yeah. But it's like, yeah. as he's, yeah. as the Terminator enters and he's going through and it's like, Hey, he didn't, that it's, guy didn't pay. And then he's going yeah. and like the, the, the dancers go into slow motion. And as oh, he, yeah. And then suddenly the, the diegetic song of, uh, Tenny Kane and her, her band, Fades away and up comes the Brad. Yeah, uh, that this this composed song. Yeah, you know, it's a beautiful piece of sound design, right? Yeah, there to have and and as there's and everything's slowing down and it's all you it's and then you hear do 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 you know something's leading up to this big you know yeah. and then remember in the book she doesn't know because they don't they leave it a mystery in the book they leave it ambiguous the novelization if who's who I mean you kind of know. But and that's how I always thought too in the movie. But you don't know, if, you know, what Reese's intention kind of is. Yeah. Well, we talk a lot about until, that in the first podcast. Yeah. We talk about how like I they, wonder what you knew as a viewer when you went to yeah. see it back then. Like, you did you know and what I, Reese was? What was he there for? What I mean, we knew that yeah. Terminator was a bad dude because he killed the punks at the beginning. Yeah. And yeah. Then the other guy. But we didn't yeah, I remember what, my dad. I always said that that my dad was always like, "I thought the movie was over." When when you know in tech noir, when the guy gets shot, I remember him saying that when I was little, uh, as well. And uh, I just find that so funny. What I, uh, there was something else I wanted to say before we wrapped up about it, and I don't remember what the heck. Um, oh, I don't know now. Oh darn it! And it was something about uh, uh, was it about Brad? No, I don't remember. Oh well, and then what he just he just and then he didn't do the third one, right? He just kind of they didn't ask him back, or he well, sometime in the late nineties, he decided to uh, leave the film music industry. He uh, just kind of didn't want to do it anymore. He had other creative things that he wanted to work on, and he wasn't necessarily being offered the kinds of projects that he wanted to work on. Um, I, weirdly enough, he at one time was in talks with Cameron about. Uh, scoring Titanic, and because uh, he had he had also scored uh, True Lies, which James James Horner ends up doing. Horner right? ends up doing it, but uh, he had he did Terminator Terminator Two, and he did True Lies with uh, Cameron. And, and then who does Aliens? Goldsmith, maybe Horner. Th- that might be Horner also, because Goldsmith did the first one, but I don't think Goldsmith did the second one. Yeah, I don't think you're right. Um, and then I don't know who does Abyss. And that's all like uh, Cameron's output right there. Yeah, but uh, apparently yeah. he he talked to Cameron about ter- about Titanic, and he really wanted to do it. Um, but Cameron ended up going with James Horner, and he admits, rightfully so, uh, he said he never would have written that that Celine Dion song, which is like you know, which is what in some ways what made that movie so popular. Um, yeah, but it's tie so- in with a big old theme. But at some point in the in the late '90s, he just decided to leave the industry um, and started. He 
working on other things. Um, he is interested in, in architecture, so he explores that. Um, I said, Dion, Brad sent me a, uh, a picture from Mexico when he went to go visit this surf resort that he had designed <laughs> or helped design. The architecture, yeah, yeah, um, and he went to go see it for the first time, and he sent me a he he sent me a picture of it, and I sent it to Dion. I was like, "Look at this place, <laughs> we, we got to go down there because it was gorgeous, it's um, phenomenal." And he wrote a he, he wrote a musical, and uh, he's been trying to uh, maybe get that produced, and he's just he's doing his own thing. He just got kind of fed up with uh, the film industry, and it's understandably so, as you do. Yeah. yeah, yeah, of course. When you're a creative yeah. person, yeah. if that's not your outlet, and, you, and you're a musician and a creator on that level, you know, sometimes that can be so much restriction. It takes so much time that you're not uh, pursuing the things that you really want to do. And so he made the kind of the, uh, what I think is a pretty brave choice or courageous choice, which is to say, like, I'm going to leave this pretty successful career in the film industry and pursue the things that he really wanted to pursue creatively. Yeah, and it's, it's, he's lucky he's able to do that, and you know he's able to have a second career or have a passion to go to, yeah. fall back on. You know, he's not just throwing all his eggs in one basket right there. Yeah. Hey, yeah, it's a phenomenal score, and and you know that, and I've always loved the pop songs in it as well. Um, I'm, I always growing up. Oh, that's what I wanted to say. I always grew up wanting to, uh, you know, singing it in the back of my head, probably <laughs> saying the lyrics all wrong. Um, yeah. I know a lot. A lot of people. Um, you know, Dark Fate came out, and you know, uh, I I didn't love. Dark Fate is, you know, I, I had some issues with it uh, in the chronology, but I remember listening or reading some of the reviews and people talking about, like, who the hell would have ever thought, and, and people criticizing it, people thought, said, who the hell would have ever contemplated what the Terminator would do after their mission was completed. As a kid, growing up so enth enthralled in Terminator 1984, that movie, I... That would be something as a kid I would think about. Like, what would happen if the Terminator completed his mission? You know, what does he do? And that's explored in Dark Fate, which is, I don't know if you think it's silly or not, but um, that was something I would contemplate. You know, like, yeah, yeah what does happen if, with these T-800s if this mission is completed? And I forget in the, in the novelization of the, they, they just talk about his life stats and stuff. But, you know, if, if you know he's going to be able to survive for 120 years or 90 years, you know. He can't just go to. I, I think what was it they say that maybe he would just wait out the T eight hundreds. His plan was to wait out until the nuclear holocaust and just then regroup with the machines. Yeah, I think they like say that. you know, which is interesting. I was like, oh, that's fucking awesome. <laughs> you know, you know, well, it probably perceives time in a very different way than we do. So yeah, exactly. So it's just going to go sit in a cave, maybe or I don't know what was it going to. You know, so it's not. You know, in the movie, it has a family. Dark like Fate has a family. You know, it's going to be like the, ori the original ending of Army of Darkness when uh, yeah, Dash goes, Dash goes into the into the cave, <laughs> just yeah. waits out. It's like um, time. What's that? Back to the Future Three. They have the DeLorean and just they, they put it in the th you know they have them covered them you know so yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I enjoyed doing that the novelization this this was a real fun novelization for me and this makes me like you said want to go get the British edition and see what yeah. the differences are maybe we'll we'll have an update update of it, of well, it you know I just love this movie I mean you do too I mean this is certainly one of the movies Predator this one and uh, and some ones that aren't even action movies or definitely movies raw that, deal that we that we bonded over. Well, we met oh, when yeah, we yeah. were 18, you know, yeah. um, our, our love for these movies. And this is a movie that I just, I appreciate even more as I get older 
and as I see it more often, like I just marvel. Like a fine at wine. The, I just marvel at the achievement of this movie, and just can't even contemplate. Well, well the ambition, and you're right. The yeah, what he's able to just do it at at at, at age. He he was in his thirties at that point because he had had a a career as a truck driver at the time, Cameron, and then he went into doing. We said we talk about all this in the first movie. He does the Roger Corman stuff, special the yeah. practical effects. He does uh, Escape from New York. He I mean, works on that. Even uh, like even the the Schwarzenegger like head mechanical head that's in the you know when he's fucking with his eye and whatnot. Oh, I think that's brilliant. As People bad, like that. I think like that's as great. dated as that looks in my mind. Yeah. When I watch yeah. it, the only thing that really doesn't work about it is like his good eye. Yeah, You're just like you can't. And then when you put the sunglasses on, you can't tell it's him. Yeah. It looks like him when he puts the sunglasses on. I mean, then it cuts to actually him. Yeah, but when yeah. he puts those sunglasses on, I think it looks great. Yeah. You know? uh, but it's just and like, all the stuff with the, you know, fixing himself. Oh, I love all that. It's just you know? it's amazing. It's just, and uh, shout yeah. out to Stan Winston, the, great, the late yeah. great oh, Stan Winston. Yeah, yeah, yeah. God bless Stan Winston. And in the novelization, him talking about repairing himself, getting the pupil off and cutting the stuff yeah. up in the sink, you know, and dropping stuff. Oh, I love all that. And yeah, so it goes. It, it talks about how, like, he assessed that the, that the eye wasn't damaged. It was the skin over the eye that was... That was sw- swelling shut. That was, cl- that was cl- causing, like, him not to be able to see, so that's why he had to cut it all out. Yeah, so he cuts the swelling out. <laughs> <laughs> and the the damaged pupil that was the cornea, yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's freaking awesome. That's what I loved about it. Like I said, all that stuff about him, his tactical, you know, his his mentality, why he's doing stuff. I thought it was brilliant. Anyway, so, this is uh, this is yeah, like fun. officially longer than our original podcast. Black hole. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, it's official. It's as long as the black hole extra and longer than the other one. So I think it might be longer than, than our first Terminator podcast. Yeah. So it's a good supplemental to the second one. But this is Part you know two. everyone's. Uh, Everyone's uh, what are you calling it? They're isolating in place, so um, we figured we'd you know give some people to listen to you know because we're uh, you know we're we're busy with our other stuff. So you know between our regular episodes, this is fun to to revisit a a, a, a class not only a classic but a Saturday night movie sleepovers classic. Yeah, that we you know maybe we'll continue this. Uh, yeah, if we continue doing this these little episodes on updating stuff we've done before, maybe we can come up with a fancy name. So yeah. um, but uh. You know, in the meantime, certainly go check out the original. We did T2 last year in the summer sequels. We did the first Terminator, Jesus, four or five years ago now. And then, um, you know, we've done other stuff related to... to, to uh, have we done any other Cameron? Uh, we've talked about doing Aliens and the Abyss and stuff, but I yeah. think that might be it. Um, so uh, check out, you know, the uh, website, Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. Check out the podcast. You can get it wherever you're listening to your... your, your, your where you listen to podcasts. We're on Facebook, we're on Twitter, we're on Instagram. You could like our stuff, retweet us, uh, interact with us, talk to us about stuff. Um, Blake, you got stuff going on. Uh, Score to Death, Conversations with Some of Horror's Greatest Composers is available on Amazon from other book retailers or from me directly at scoretodeath.com. Also, nice. you can check me out on <laughs> Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Scored to Death. And uh, a Scored to Death sequel is coming out at some time in the uh, hopefully not too distant future. I don't know how this uh, pandemic is going to affect the publishing industry, but uh, if it comes out as scheduled, it should come out in fall or uh, or winter, but I don't know, even though, like... You as know, of this recording of 2020. Yeah, so fall or winter of uh, 2020, but I don't know if 
I have no idea how it's working, so I don't know if books are getting printed that are supposed to be out. You know, I don't. Sure, I don't know if mouth. the printing factories, the printing presses, are, are running. You know what I mean? So, well, if it's in China, they're running. You know, they they got everything up and going in there. So, so. they're print for some reason. The, the, I hear the print industries uh, is, is is related to China or, or weirdness of it all. Yeah. But um, uh, I got my book, Blood in the Streets. That's uh, you can get that on Amazon or wherever you books are sold. That's paperback. That's ebook or that's audio book if you don't like to read. And then um, I've got a, another book, hopefully coming out, like Blake saying, at the end of the year too, called uh, Morris PI. It's um, private detective, uh, '40s private detective, kind of a Nina Jones fair, which is fun. Uh, and hopefully that'll be out at the end of the year too, depending on everything. And uh, you know, we'd like to thank everybody uh, for listening and checking us out, and uh, hope everybody's okay. I just want to say, you know, I was just thinking that uh, part of the inspiration to do this was like let's do something that we can just do like really short yeah yeah and meanwhile <laughs> like, we're an hour and a half we'll, in. Do, we'll do a half hour 40 minutes <laughs> yeah and look at us now that yeah, way we're still going. that way we're not doing a full episode this will take less time but meanwhile yeah, we've actually i, re- done full I read episodes. a novelization for this and we just did an episode longer than, it's almost an hour and a half long. <laughs> yeah in the last one i read the novelization three comic books <laughs> And researched all the comic, you know, gold key. So rethink this strategy. Yeah. So anyway, thank you very much for listening. Just you know, please uh, be calm and carry on. And you know, uh, you know, we hope everything's okay. And you know, we're here if you need us. uh, You know, and uh, we'll be back with a regular installment very soon. Uh, You know, we're moving into the summer of months. So we hope uh, as of this recording, everything is okay. And. um, you know, we'll be back very soon. So uh, until we next meet, later. <laughs>